before I have you stand and read, I just want to remind everybody, this is a family-friendly service, so we have children in here. So if you need to stand up, walk around, do whatever, that's perfectly all right. I'll try and have us here, out of here by two or three this afternoon. All right, if you would please stand. I will be reading from John chapter 19, which is, of course, Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, this Good Friday we, we is the day that the church has traditionally remembered Jesus's crucifixion. So let's read. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They there crucified him and with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus where, uh, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in obviously all four gospel accounts record Jesus' crucifixion. This is a major thing that happens and all of them record it. All of them record it differently because they're looking at it from different angles. They're not contradictory. They just have different elements. And we know if we put all four gospels together, Jesus had seven phrases that he said while he was on the cross. John records three of those phrases. So for some reason, John, knowing all seven of the things that Jesus said, decided to include just three. So this afternoon, I guess we are now, I want to look at those three things. John could have picked any three out of the seven, but he picked these three phrases by Jesus to record. So I want to look at them and understand what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate. So the first of these three phrases was, behold your son. So the, John records, uh, he doesn't sit, use his own name. He says the disciple whom Jesus loved. We, we know this is John. John's trying to be humble. He's not mentioning himself, but, but it is John. 
And any of the other disciples, not only were they scattered and scared, but they themselves would have been arrested and maybe crucified had they gone to that place. They, they, they would have been threats to the religious leaders and maybe even to some of the Roman rulers. But John was young. I mean, he, he was so young. He likely was Jesus's cousin, but he was so young, he would have been looked at as a boy even. He wouldn't have been seen as a threat. So it makes sense that this is John who's there at the cross. And this is where Jesus looks at Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and says, behold your mother. So why is Jesus saying this? Well, probably by this point, Joseph is dead. There's no recording of Joseph anywhere in Jesus's adult life, which would make Mary a widow. And, and widows were generally taken care of in that day by, and much of the you know, different cultures today, by their children. But here she is, uh, standing in front of Jesus. And, and this part isn't in the text, but many have posited that Mary's beginning to panic because, well, first she's watching her son murdered. I mean, any mother watching their son go through this would be panicking. I, I can't imagine anybody not. But not only is she watching her son go, go through this, she's probably thinking, who's gonna take care of me now? And Jesus has other brothers and sisters. That's well recorded in scripture. But we know that they had completely written Jesus off at this point. They, they thought Jesus was crazy at this point. And they're, they're nowhere to be found. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to think they had some way, in some way also written off Mary or at least distanced themselves from her. So maybe she's panicking because here's Jesus, the only one because, you know, who's really still in her life and she doesn't know how she's going to be taken care of. And I love the thought, you know, whatever the true motivation for the panicking, but I, I, I do believe deeply. She is not only emotionally in turmoil, she is panicking and whatever the reason, I love the thought that Jesus knew what was gonna happen. He knew he was gonna ri rise up in three days. He knew that his siblings would, would believe in him and be devoted to him. He knew that John would faithfully take care of her in the short-term future and likely his siblings really took care of her as well. He knew that she had nothing in this moment to worry about. But right now, she's watching her son die. She's panicking. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't get irritated with her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't even tell her, hey, this is what's going to happen. Don't, don't panic. Like, I, I know the future. I know what's going to happen. Instead, in the midst of unimaginable physical and emotional and spiritual pain, in that moment, Jesus comforts her. Jesus comforts other people when he's in the middle of the greatest torment that any of us could ever imagine, greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And he looks at her and he says, woman, behold your son. So Jesus, he, he, on the cross, he's showing us, he doesn't just show comfort to his people when, we, when, when it's convenient to him. You know, he doesn't just show comfort to his people when we deserve it. He shows us comfort because he loves us and he shows us comfort when we need comfort. And he shows it to us often when we deserve it the least and we need it the most. This is the first thing that we see Jesus saying, behold your son, he's comforting his mom. He's thinking of her above himself, even when he knows how everything's gonna transpire. The second thing that he says is I thirst. Now. For years, when I, I read this, I would just think, oh, that makes sense. I mean, he's been hanging on a cross in the hot sun most of the day. It's about three in the afternoon. His, his morning started prob probably before 4 a.m. So it makes sense that he's thirsty. 
But the more you look at it, this doesn't make sense. Because Jesus, he doesn't speak during his crucifixion unless there's a reason to say something. He, he has significant uh, meaning behind everything that he says. He's very measured with his words. And complaining isn't one of the reasons that Jesus speaks. He doesn't complain through his floggings, through his beatings, through uh, walking up to the side of the crucifixion. He doesn't complain when he's humiliatingly stripped naked and nailed to a cross. He doesn't complain. Jesus was silent before the high priest Caiaphas. He was silent before Herod and he was silent before Pilate. So it doesn't make sense that now at the moment of the death, for the, his death, for the first time, Jesus would think about himself and he would claim and he would say, hey guys, I'm just really thirsty. Could you help me here before I die? That doesn't make any sense. And it would also contradict Isaiah 53, 7, which says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But the thing that really helped me and opened my eyes to what was going on was in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures. That's important. I thirst. So he's not just thinking of himself. There's a bigger plan at play. He's communicating that something more significant than I just want one last drink of water before I die. He's saying, I, I'm fulfilling this prophecy. And that prophecy was likely Psalm 69, which said, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So in these two words, Jesus is communicating something significantly profound. He knows what he's doing. He knows this is all a part of his plan. And even at the end of his life, he's saying to everybody, nailed on that cross, I'm still in control. I still know what's going to happen. I'm still here of my choosing. And this is all a part of God's divine plan for me and for his people, my people. And this is what Jesus communicated, if you think about it, throughout the whole of his ministry. There's a plan This isn't going to go well short-term for Jesus, but he knows what he's doing. We hear this all over his ministry, but it makes me think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Sorry, I jumped ahead there. Uh, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So what Jesus is doing, he's doing knowingly and willingly. And even at the very end, John says that Jesus gave up his spirit. He doesn't say that it was stripped from him or taken from him. Even in the way John says these, you know, his spirit left him. Jesus' feeling is he voluntarily, willingly gave this up. And then when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, you know, Peter, I, I said this this week in the devotional, but I, I imagine him, he, he, the, the Romans come in and he, he, he doesn't strike me as a soldier. I think of him just flailing the sword and, and, he, and he knocks off one of the ears of the soldiers and Jesus, of course, miraculously reattaches it. I have to wonder what the soldiers are thinking like they're here to do at that point. But Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So Jesus is talking about this plan. He knows what he's going. He's going to the cross and he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. The wrath that all of us deserve for eternity, for our sin. That is what Jesus is going to the cross to drink, to take in our place. And you hear people say, 
you know, some, some interesting things about the idea of God's wrath. You hear people say that, you know, hell is the, just the absence of God. Well, that's, that's not at all accurate. It's the absence of God's good, what we would call good characteristics, happy characteristics, the absence of, of his joy and mercy and grace. But hell is the eternal presence of God's justice and wrath. And that is the cup that Jesus is drinking for his people on the cross that day. And you have the progressive side of the church that would just say that there's no such thing as God's wrath. I mean, that's just an archaic idea. You know, there are modern hymns like All I Have is Christ. Uh, or that, and I think that the line goes, and on that day when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so the progressive church, lots of churches are putting that song into their, our hymnals, but the progressive church won't because they, they do not acknowledge that there is a wrath of God that needed to be satisfied on that Good Friday. And they would say that, that Jesus going to the cross, it was just, he just did that to show us how much he loved us. And I, was, I just think of how, I don't want to be crass, but how ridiculous that is. I, I went to, my family, we went to North Carolina for spring break and we, we went hiking. That was, that was, that's something we love to do every spring break. And there's this one hike where you end up on top of this mountain and, it, and it's just this beautiful view, but it's kind of scary with the kids there because it's just like the straight drop of what seems like thousands of feet. I, I'm not good at judging elevation. I grew up in Florida, but it's, it's a big drop. And, and I, I think about what if I turned to my family at that moment and said, Angela, kids, I just want to show you how much I love you. And I jumped off. Like that, that's in essence what they're saying by Jesus's, uh, Jesus died on the cross, you know, just to show us how much he loved us. But it's a whole different thing if one of my, somebody in my family lost their footing and the only way to prevent them from falling meant that I would fall in their place. That's what Jesus is communicating. This is the kind of love that Jesus is displaying for us, not just displaying, but acting for us and I can tell you that a fall off a cliff would be a equivalent to a stub toe comparing to what Jesus is enduring. And I imagine, you know, it got dark between noon and three. And I imagine that's when the, you know, I don't know this for sure, but it, that's when the full wrath went on Jesus. And many have, have again posited that sinful man didn't deserve to watch Jesus die for us. And that's why it went dark. I have no idea, but what he endured is worse than anything we can imagine. And praise God, it's worse than anything that we can imagine because or if we have put our faith in him. So these words, I thirst. He's saying, I have a plan. I know what's going on. I'm fulfilling this prophecy. And that plan is about to be complete. Which brings us to our third and final phrase, it is finished. This is probably the most famous of all the phrases, all the things that Jesus said on the cross. And, and I don't know if he's saying it loudly or not, but either way, he is at least metaphorically shouting to everyone who will hear that everything that is necessary for man to be reconciled with God has been accomplished on this cross. Nothing else is necessary. Peace has been accomplished. So what exactly is finished when Jesus dies on that cross? Well, four things, and I'll, I'll make these four short. First, the law is fulfilled. 
And probably the main theme of the week, of the, of the Holy Week, is Jesus's condemnation and curse on the temple system. So you may remember the sacrificial t- temple system, it was given to the Israelites as a good system to be able to sacrifice and worship by faith. Remember, it was always by faith, all the way back to Abraham. This was by faith in what God would do for them one day. But the religious leaders of that era, they, they hijacked this. They turned it from a system of faith and worship into a system of works-based righteousness. So if you heard Robert's sermon last Sunday, he talked about that fig tree. You remember when Jesus cursed that fig tree on Monday-ish, depending on how you look at it. But when he cursed that fig tree, why did he curse it? Because it it looked like a good fig tree. It had leaves, It, it looked like a good fig tree, but it had no fruit. It wasn't doing the main thing that the fig tree was supposed to do. And Jesus says in the same way, the temple system has no more fruit. It doesn't produce the fruit of righteousness. But Jesus's death on the cross, it fulfills everything that the sacrificial system pointed to and there is nothing else needed. And at that moment, what happened? And I do think it's just as Jesus says these words, it is finished, an earthquake hit. And that earthquake we know caused inside the temple what to happen. This giant veil that separated the holiest of holies, God's dwelling place from sinful man. It was torn from the top down because Jesus had fulfilled that whole system. Nothing else is necessary. Now we can confidently approach the throne. There is no veil, there is no separation because it is finished. Secondly, Jesus is saying that the devil has been defeated. You know, what probably looked to Satan that day like his biggest win quickly becomes his greatest defeat. The cross didn't get rid of, the cross didn't get rid of Jesus. The cross, on the cross, Jesus exponentially expanded his ministry. It's not just for Israel anymore. Not only is it, is it more efficacious than the whole temple system, it's not just for Israel, it's for the whole world. And so for me, I, I get this imagery of a dam. I don't know if you've ever driven over a big like hydroelectric dam. I can remember the first time I drove over the Hoover Dam. What's going on there? You have a river that used to bless only those proximately close to that river that would give life to those who were right there with it. Now, when you harness the power of the dam, you send electricity for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. So the blessing of the river is now blessed exponentially greater. And in the same way, what Jesus is accomplishing is an exponential global movement that is more powerful, that has a farther reach and is going to defeat Satan for all of eternity. Satan has one, one thing over us, the right accusation of our sin of our rebellion against God. But on the cross, that wrath was satisfied. And in the words of Paul in Romans eight, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus, think about this, on the cross, that foot nailed to the cross was crushing the head of the serpent as prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Third, Jesus is proclaiming that the cup, the cup of God's wrath that we've talked about has been drained. 
It's been drained. He took it all. He took all the wrath that all God's people deserve. And for, for those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, there is no more cup. It has all been drunk. It is empty. There's nothing left. During that supernatural darkness, Jesus took the wrath of God and there's nothing left for the people who claim Jesus is our only hope, who see Jesus as the only way that we will be reconciled to God and have peace with him. And then lastly, when Jesus said it is finished, we sinners are saved. On the cross, Jesus accomplished everything necessary for his people to be reconciled to him, to be brought close to him, to, to uh, approach him confidently. On the cross, he guaranteed that we would be brought to that feast at the end of time that will eternally satisfy us. He guaranteed that we would be brought to this great wedding with our bridegroom, Jesus, the great high priest who offered himself on the altar that we might know him and confidently approach him in every time of need. And it's not lost on me that this is the sixth day of Holy Week. Have you ever thought about that? What does God do on the sixth day of creation? He rests and he says, it is good. And on the sixth day of Holy Week, Jesus dies on the cross, but just before he does, he says, it is finished. And that is good news for us. And this is why we call this day Good Friday. I love the song that we just sang. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the refrain goes, I'll spare you my singing. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This can only be true if it is truly finished. Our salvation has been accomplished and our mission begins. I didn't plan this with Erickson, but he, he, in his prayer, he prayed something like, this is not the end, but the beginning. And that is exactly true. This is, this is the, the beginning of the mission. Our sin has been accomplished, but the mission starts. And so this Good Friday, I think a profitable and helpful and fruitful thing would be to think about is this day good for us? Is it good? Because if you don't believe in Jesus, this is not a good day for you. That, that cup still remains. But if you believe in Jesus, there is no cup of God's wrath. And this is not just a good day, but a great day. Because we see what he took on in our place and what he gave us that we could never earn. So is this day good for you? And then secondly, is this, is this day good for those around you? the people you're relationally in proximity to. Is this a good day for them? And how, if you don't think that it is, how might we use the events of this day to communicate the gospel to them that this day would be good for them? I think if we spend the rest of this, that day to, to mull over those two things, to meditate on those two things, is this day good for us and why? And is this day good for those that we're around and those we care about and those we love? and prayerfully engage them that this day might be good. Maybe this weekend is the first day that they see it as good in their life. Let's pray. God, I am I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for the way that you chose to save us, that you, you don't 
guilt us into anything. You don't ask us to accomplish something that we might merit it. You, you did it. You sent your son, which in some way is you yourself in a mysterious kind of way. It wasn't like some cosmic child abuse. You came and you died for our sins. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And then you offer that righteousness to us after having, having taken on the wrath, offering us your righteousness that we can never earn. And then being made pure, you send us on mission. God, would we know this and love this and cherish this more today? We love you, we thank you, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.